This is taken from the Saturday Evening Post, April 22nd, 1950. Nine Heroic Ships There is fact behind the fiction when a ship in Robert Carse's tense story, page 26, is nominated for the Gallant Ship Award. During the war, the Marine Time Commission thus decorated nine ships with plaques if there was anything left to decorate, which in several cases there wasn't. The crew survivors of these valiant craft got individual ribbons. The Cedar Mills did come through after towing the French warship La Triomphant, which had a 45 degree list, threw a terrific blow off East Africa, and saving part of her crew from the sea and sharks. The first of these awards went to Samuel Parker for beating off repeated air attacks while ablaze in action off Tripoli while British soldiers lining her decks shot at the aircraft with rifles. Three vessels won the honor on the North Russian run where Carse's story is laid. The William Moultrie, the Nathaniel Green, which later was torpedoed and beached in North Africa, and the Virginia Dare, also fated to be torpedoed in the Mediterranean where her crew beached her before she broke her back. The Marcus Daly and the Adram Judson did their great deeds in the Layette Gulf action. And the remaining two award winners never came home. The tanker Stanvac Calcutta finally went down after a fierce running fight with a German raider off Brazil and the Stephen Hawkins battled two raiders in the South Atlantic, sinking one and badly damaging the other before disappearing herself. Ten of her crew survived 31 days in a lifeboat. This is taken from Marine News, Shipmaster Tells War Thriller Tale, by Roy Beadley. He does it quietly and without embellishment, but Captain E.J. Stahl, master of the American mail liner India Mail, now preparing to load wheat here for India, can tell you a wartime suspense story that will make your hair curl. Stahl was master of the Portland-built Liberty Samuel Parker and assigned to the British Ministry of War transport for service in the Mediterranean before and during the invasion of Sicily. We were at anchor in Tripoli one night, our number three hatch loaded with blockbusters. We saw a phosphorescent wake moving toward us, and at first I thought it was a big fish. And then we could tell it was a German circling torpedo, he relates. It was so close we couldn't depress our machine guns enough to fire at it, so we began firing with small arms. It made two complete circles around the ship, then headed straight for that number three hatch. We all thought that was the end. But for no apparent reason, the torpedo dived within a few feet of the side, then came to the surface again and headed away from us. A British officer aboard our ship finally exploded it with rifle fire, and it threw spray mast high. Help traded. Stull's ship carried British 8th Army troops and munitions in the invasion of Sicily, and the vessel received so many near-bomb misses that she had more than 250 holes in her hull and superstructure. We would have sunk for sure if the British cruiser Delhi hadn't sent over a crew of artificers to help our own men stop leaks, he said. Stull was decorated by both the British and American governments for the service in the campaign, and the Parker received the Gallant Ship Award. Crew? Ship? Fine. I don't want to make this sound egotistical, Stull pleaded in the interview. Please, make it clear that the crew deserved most of the credit. I had a wonderful crew, and the Parker was a wonderful ship. The Parker returned to New York for repairs and then operated in convoy service to England for a period. In December 1943, Stoll was relieved for a vacation. The vacation lasted three days. Then he was ordered to the Pacific, where he commanded and turned the Island Mail and China Mail, both of the American Mail Line fleet, then serving as troop ships. Stoll first went to sea in 1906 in square riggers and thinks that seafaring now is a picnic compared with then. 
He has been with American Mail and its predecessor since 1919. The Indian Mail, one of American Mail's four Portland-ported C-3s, is making a first visit here and will load 12,800 short tons of grain for Madras and Calcutta when she finishes lining at Clark & Wilson. SS India Mail on March 10, 1952, from 8.30 to 10.30 p.m., we passed through a glistening milk-white sea. Not the usual green phosphorescence that is occasionally seen on tropic waters, but a sea of foamy, pure white milk that was luminous enough to light up our mass and king post and house. There was none of the ordinary sparkling phosphorescence about it. It was just a shining, pure white, as brilliant as a beaded movie screen. The surface appeared foamy, a solid unbroken, white clear to the horizon, which was a sharp line against the overcast of the sky that was inky black by comparison. This white sea was roughly oval in shape, lying northeast and southwest and about 30 by 40 miles in extent. Its axis lay approximately 21 degrees north, 115 degrees east to 22 degrees north and 115 degrees east. The area was visible more than 20 miles away a clear streak on the horizon, as though the thick overcast was lifting to show the sky. The sea was smooth. A gentle to moderate breeze blew from the north. The sky was overcast. Temperature, sea 75 to 77, at intake, air 70 degrees. We passed the extreme northern edge of this patch, eastbound 29 hours later, at about 2 a.m. March 21st. Here, the water was merely a dirt white at the ship but the whole southern horizon bosch-lighted with a glow like dawn. North of us, the sea was black. Temperature of the sea, 70 degrees. Air, 63. Sky, thick overcast. In this part of the China Sea, at and near the edge of the continental shelf, where the colder waters meet and mingle with the tropic sea, I have often seen green fire phosphorescence in bands, and also alternating bands of dirty white and black water spaced evenly and regularly about 100 yards apart. But this time was the first time in more than 40 years at sea that I have seen a solid, shining, milk-white sea. E.J. Stull, Master.